Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's time for the playoffs. It's time to decide who's going to Vegas. Will it be Baltimore, Miami, Kansas City, or Buffalo coming out of the AFC? Is it going to be San Francisco, Dallas, Detroit even coming out of the NFC? Pick your two conference champions, parlay it, and remember, get your 50% welcome bonus on that first parlay using our promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, when you use the link in the description to this episode at BetOnline Sportsbook. Bet online where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However, and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping on into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network, except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fantabulous Take It Easy podcast. I am so excited to be here with you. Welcome, welcome. It's NFL Monday. It's 2024. How about that? It's 2024, everybody. Happy New Year. Hope you all are doing fantastic. It's now our sixth different calendar year of the Take It Easy podcast. Started it in 2019. We've done it in 2020, 2021, 2022, and 2023. And now let's add a sixth calendar year to the Take It Easy podcast here today. So excited to have you guys here. Thank you all for your continued support of the show and thank you for your patience. We had a a bit of a vacation time and this is the first time in those six calendar years that we've really put the podcast on the back burner. We didn't give you as much content as we traditionally promised we would. Obviously, we've gone from five days a week, sometimes six to three days a week, sometimes four, maybe five. But this week, trust me, we are coming at you heavy hitting with the Take It Easy podcast. We've got NFL Monday today where we're going to break down the two massive stakes that happened on The two games with massive stakes that went down, the Lions and the Cowboys, and of course the Ravens and Dolphins game, which might have the most dramatic stakes of any game so far this year. We're going to have a college football playoff recap show on Tuesday. We are going to have Get Up Out the Paint Week later on this week, because last year we, we lumped Get Up Out the Paint Week onto the NFL Monday podcast, but there's just so much happening on this NFL Monday that we got to do a separate Get Up Out the Paint podcast. We're going to have guests on the show. We're going to have long-form topics. We're going to maybe have Razor Rosenthal on the show, Morgan from Australia, efforting Blake Jude, our friend Juju Talk Sports. There's going to be so much Take It Easy podcast coming at you here in January. January is probably the biggest month on the sports calendar, and we've got our energy and our focus towards continuing to bring you those 
podcast. So we're going to have a busy, busy week on the show, and it starts here today with our NFL Monday for Week 17. There's a lot to get to, a lot to break down, and the two games I want to focus in on the most with the bulk of the podcast, and we'll get to Bengals and Kansas City. We'll get to all sorts of stuff that went down here on Week 17, but the game I want to, the games I would like to focus in on most are Detroit-Dallas and Baltimore-Miami because of the stakes and storylines that come around those games that both had the potential coming into the weekend of being true five-star sporting events according to our five-star standard of rating sporting events and i'm excited to talk about both so without further ado let's talk about just how fucked up and amazing the ending of that detroit lions and dallas cowboy game was oh my lord that was a disgustingly fun football game at the end Okay, we'll we'll get to the we'll work our way up to the final play of the game that everyone has seen, where the Detroit Lions were going for a two point conversion, and then they didn't get the two point conversion, but they did get the two point conversion, but they didn't because of the refs making a mistake, and then them going for it on the seven yard line, and then them not getting it, but there was another flag, so then we tried a third two point conversion, and then Jared Goff made a bad pass. Uh, would have scored the go-ahead two-point conversion, and they were going for two in the first place. We'll get to all of that in a little bit. We're going to work our way up to the end of the game. First of all, at the start of the season when we were doing Dallas Cowboy analysis, the thing that I said more prominently than any other is that this year's Dallas Cowboy offense is going to be super dependent on C.D. Lamb. And so far this year, the Dallas Cowboys have recorded 5,800 yards of offense, which is really good in terms of total yards of offense in the league. Going into Week 17, because remember the Cowboys and Lions have both played an extra game now, going into that game, they were ranked 6th in the NFL in yards of offense. And Dallas had a really, really good game. But the thing that I think is so interesting about this year's Dallas Cowboy team is that they are more dependent on CeeDee Lamb than any other team is on a singular offensive player. CeeDee Lamb this year has about 29% of all total Cowboys offense. He broke the Cowboys franchise record for yards of offense. Or sorry, for receiving yards. I mean, he doesn't... It's also for running the ball, but specifically in receiving yards, he broke Michael Irvin's franchise record. And oh, by the way, he didn't need the extra game to break Michael Irvin's franchise record for receiving yards in a season. He broke the record in 16 games. And CeeDee Lamb has has taken up 29% of the Cowboys' offense. He is their unique singular threat. In the last four years, only Cooper Cup on the 2022 or sorry 2021 Rams and Justin Jefferson on the 2022 Vikings have had a higher percentage of team offense than the CD Lamb D- Dallas Cowboys have utilized him this year not even Terry Kill because the Dolphins have over 6000 yards of offense through 15 games They have not used Tariq Hill as much as the Cowboys have utilized CD Lamb in that offense, which was something that at the end of last year, when the Cowboys got to the playoffs 
against Tampa, and then against San Francisco. By the end of that playoff run, it became CeeDee Lamb taking end-around plays. Every play was a route run through CeeDee Lamb. The Cowboys became incredibly CeeDee Lamb's dependent. And this game was the epitome of that, even beyond the 92-yard touchdown that should have been a sack by the Lions, but number 55, who I think might be Jack Campbell, who has just been a terrible first-round pick for them. Number 55 whiffed on a hit on Dak Prescott, which then led to the 92-yard touchdown. Beyond that play, C.D. Lamb had 139 yards of receiving outside of the 92-yard touchdown. So if you take away the 92-yard touchdown, he still recorded over 50% of the Cowboys' receiving yards and accounted for over 50% of the targets in the Cowboys' offense. So Dallas is becoming increasingly C.D. Lamb. I mean, they've been C.D. Lamb dependent all season, more so to a single receiver than any other player on any other team this season. But as the season winds to an end and players start getting injured and the offensive playbook shrinks a little bit, the Cowboys have come to the the, the point of, hey, we got to throw the ball to C.D. Lamb. And the Cowboys' offense went from this high-explosive, high-octane offense that had Dak Prescott for two months throwing 20 touchdowns and one interception and looking like he was going to be the MVP. Now the playbook is shrinking for the Dallas Cowboys. Now they only have but so many options they can go to, and you're seeing just how CeeDee Lamb dependent they're going to. And in this game, beyond CeeDee Lamb, it was also some Brandon Cooks mixed in there. Obviously, Cooks ended up getting the touchdown. He is their second receiver, but you can kind of tell he's not the Brandon Cooks of yesteryear where you'd feel pretty good if he was your wide receiver too. The Cowboys probably would like another wide receiver in the mix there. This is the team they have. Michael Gallup is kind of their wide receiver three and their deep play threat at this point. But in the modern NFL, the deep play threat doesn't really matter. And in this Cowboy offense, the deep play threat doesn't matter as much because your best deep threat receiver is CeeDee Lamb. Your best short yardage receiver is CeeDee Lamb. Your best deep yardage receiver is CeeDee Lamb. It's like with Cooper Cup and the Rams two years ago where everyone was making the point, well, the Rams need a deep ball threat in this high-octane explosive NFL offense. Well, now you don't even need an explosive threat in the NFL offense because everyone is playing two high safeties and everyone's running cover two and big plays get taken away because there's always double coverage taking away the deep ball and daring you to be a more precise, efficient offense when only like four NFL offenses can be precise and efficient at the level that's required to have a top five NFL offense without the deep ball. And by the way, the Cowboys are kind of one of those teams. The Cowboys are pretty close to being one of those teams throughout the season who were able to have a high-octane offense without the deep ball, and then the offense fell apart later in the season. But I think it's so interesting to see just how C.D. Lamb dependent they are going to because C.D. Lamb... That was what we thought at the start of the season. We thought this is going to be an offense that is predicated on the performance of C.D. Lamb because they have some other players, but none of them are really breakout star candidates for the Dallas, for, in the Dallas Cowboy offense. I mean, Brandon Cooks has been a fine receiver for them, but he's replacing production lost by Noah Brown and Dalton Schultz at about the level that Noah Brown and Dalton Schultz were putting together. With Jake Ferguson and C- and Brandon Cooks, they've taken a step back in terms of their production which a lot of that is just Dalton Schultz Dalton Schultz was quietly like a Mark Andrews type of player in that offense last year and so what's interesting is Dallas 
as the season shrinks and as the playbook shrinks, has basically said, yep, CeeDee Lamb, that's our offense. And by the way, it's a pretty damn good strategy because if you were watching Cam Sutton try and follow CeeDee Lamb, which they didn't put Cam Sutton on CeeDee Lamb the whole game, but if you watched CeeDee Lamb against Cam Sutton and whatever revolving door of second corner the Detroit Lions have because Troy Aikman brought this up in the broadcast and I hadn't been paying close enough attention to the Lions to notice this. The Lions have benched three different number two corners this month. When they lost to the Bears, they benched their number two corner. Uh, His replacement got benched at the end of last week, and then they had a third different corner who was, I believe, an undrafted second-year player slide in as the number two corner spot, and they got cooked, cooked on the outside. There was a play where the Lions ran a blitz of six, got unblocked through the offensive line, a perfectly executed six-man blitz on third and ten. This was on the 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 um the go-ahead scoring drive. For No, this was on the drive that led to the punt by Dallas that then immediately led to the Goff interception. But on that drive, they had a third and ten. The Lions ran a perfectly executed blitz. Rush six, linebacker goes unblocked through the middle, untouched through the middle. And when he gets to Prescott, Prescott takes a hit, throws the ball, Wide open, C.D. Lamb off the slant route, catches it, runs it for another five yards. It's a 12-yard completion, first down Cowboys. The Lions ran a perfectly executed blitz that got unblocked pressure from the linebacker on Dak Prescott, and it didn't matter because they could not cover C.D. Lamb for two seconds off a slant route. It turned out to be the game change. Well, it didn't because they ended up punting at the end of the drive, I believe. But the point still stands. It's a perfect epitome of what was going on with the Dallas Cowboy offense in that game. CeeDee Lamb is the best offensive threat that the Cowboys have. He is the only top 10 receiver in the league that has put up over 29% of their team's offensive yardage for the entire season. And CeeDee Lamb ended up having the giant game that kept the Cowboys offense alive, scraping by the barrel, by the barrel, to get by Detroit. And the reason that they got that victory is because of Detroit's defense. And this now leads us to the, or I'm sorry, not Detroit's defense, Dallas's defense, and Jared Goff having a couple of really bad mistakes. Not even just the two interceptions. Jared Goff has some dumbass throws in the middle of that game. Uh, not just the two-point conversion at the end where he just missed the tight end. Should have led him into the end zone and missed him on the winner. But the thing that I think is so interesting now is the clock management before we get to the referee not counting the eligible re- receiver and all that stuff. Because remember when Jared Goff threw that interception on the out route? That led to the Cowboys getting the ball with two minutes and four seconds to play inside the Lions' 30-yard line. Because after that happened, and the Cowboys got the stop they were looking for, they got the stop that would have put the Lions into Kirk Cousins' purgatory. And again, sometimes you win in Kirk Cousins' purgatory, very often you lose in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. But they would have really liked to have put the Cowboys into Kirk Cousins' purgatory. I'm sorry, the Cowboys would have loved to put the Lions in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. Up seven, up seven, no timeouts, one minute to play, and needing to go the length of the field. 
So on the first play with 2.04 left to play, the Cowboys run the ball with Tony Pollard, gain seven yards, and there's a flag on the play for tripping on Dallas. And Adam Schefter pointed out afterwards, the tripping should have been called on Aiden Hutchinson, but because the Dallas player got tripped by his own player, the mistake ended up going against Dallas. And Dallas got backed up 15 yards from the spot of the foul, which actually was like right near the line of scrimmage, so it ended up being a first and 15, I think, at the end of it. But it was such an interesting decision because they were at the two-minute warning. The clock had stopped. And the Lions chose to enforce the pe- the penalty. That was a really interesting decision because the Lions only had two timeouts at this point in the game. If you decline the penalty, it's second and three. If you get the stops on second and third down, you force the field goal, you have no timeouts, but there's a minute and 50 left on the clock. By accepting the penalty... It's now first down and 15, a longer distance from the first down. You're more likely to get the stop, but you lose 45 to 50 seconds because the Cowboys are now running an extra play that you won't be able to stop the clock on because you only have two timeouts. You can call timeout on first down, you can call timeout on second down, but then you can't call timeout on third down. Whereas on the flip side, if it were second and three, you would have been able to call timeout on second Call timeout on third. Cowboys kick the field goal on fourth. And I understand the point that, like, well, that it was closer to the first down for the Lions to stop them, or for the the Lions to stop the Cowboys from getting the first down. Fifteen yards and three yards is a dramatic difference in changing the opportunity of stopping the Cowboys. But my philosophy was like, either way, you're going to have to get a stop on Dallas to win the game. So I guess I understand that point of it, but it's the trade-off of, like, do you save 12 yards away from the first down or do you save the 45 to 50 seconds that you would need in order to you get the ball, go down the field, and win the game? And so it's interesting because they made the call to enforce the penalty. The Cowboys ran the ball. Detroit called a timeout. And then Dallas and Mike McCarthy, who in fairness to Mike McCarthy, I've been crapping on his play calling and thought it was laughably funny when him and Brian Schottenheimer were going to be running the offense for the Cowboys this year. And they have not lost a step after Kellen Moore left. Granted, they're going to finish with the same 12-5 and record with or without Kellen Moore, but they did not lose a step without Kellen Moore. For some reason, Mike McCarthy drew up a fade pass down the sideline to Brandon Cooks, a route that Brandon Cooks did not run because I presume it was a timing route on Cooks' part. And so Prescott just threw the ball away out of bounds down the right sideline and stopped the clock for third and 14. It was the most dumbfounding decision I could think of that the Cowboys made there because you just gifted them that 45 to 50 seconds that you got back by them accepting the penalty that probably should have been on Detroit but was called on you. And so it was crazy. It was crazy 
that they made that play call, and then on third and 14 decided, well, we got to pass the ball here, and they threw it to Ferguson, and fortunately he caught it for seven yards and set them up for a field goal, and, and Detroit had to burn their last time out. But that 45 to 50 seconds kind of made a big difference once Detroit got the ball, and then Detroit ended up going down the field because the Cowboys backed off into cover three and protect the end zone defense, and Detroit went 15 yards to Laporta. 15 yards to Laporta, 20 yards to Amon Ross St. Brown, then touchdown to Amon Ross St. Brown. It took them five plays to go down the field. They scored it with like 20 seconds left to play or 29 seconds left to play, which granted, with 29 seconds left to play, the 45 to 50 seconds you would have saved by not throwing the football there would have been the difference in the game. And that's crazy to think about. That's crazy to think about the mismanagement of clock that Dallas had put in there, especially if and when Detroit would have converted that three that two-point conversion. Because I had felt coming into that game from the very beginning, this is a game Dallas is going to win. Dallas is not only at home where they're 7-0 on the season, Detroit may be 11-4, but their expected win-loss record is about 9-6. and six on the season. So they've been incredibly lucky in some one-score games, including when the Bears blew a 14-point lead in 7 minutes and when Kadarius Tony dropped four passes, whereas if he only dropped three passes to begin the season, Kansas City would have beaten Detroit the first week of the season. If if Tony only drops three of those four passes, Kansas City wins that game. Incredibly low win probability for Detroit. And so a Detroit team that's about three and uh, that about nine and six, and a Dallas team that their expected win loss record is top five in the NFL at about ten and a half and four and a half. The Cowboys should have won that football game, and I felt pretty confident the Cowboys would win that football game. And the Cowboys had that football game won. Because their defense made Jared Goff make the mistakes that were the reason why Jared Goff ended up leaving the Los Angeles Rams. And so it was so interesting to watch in real time the Cowboys' clock management and defensive game plan in the two-minute drill just completely evaporate in front of them. They just completely evaporate in the final two minutes when all they had to do was take advantage of the fact that the Lions chose to give them a free play off a penalty You could burn the minute, kick the field goal, because your kicker's a perfect kicker on the season, kick the field goal, and then now you're up. Now you're up 20 to 13, and the Lions are in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. You're betting on Jared Goff to go in one minute, 75 yards with no timeouts in Kirk Cousins' purgatory. And we would have given Jared Goff the Kirk Cousins' purgatory award otherwise. But instead, Mike McCarthy mismanaged the clock, let Detroit walk down the field, Dan Quinn's poor defense in the cover three, was way too conservative at the end of the game. The same issue with Texas and Oklahoma, all that stuff. And that was what got Detroit back into the game. And only by one of the craziest endings to a game, and and we don't say that a lot. I think it's one of the craziest endings to a game in my mind just because we never see that. We never see that ending where it's a... Two-point conversion because Man Campbell has for years been the top of the hierarchy and the punting is for cowards. Uh, We have a punting is for cowards hierarchy here on the Take It Easy podcast and Dan Campbell has been at the pinnacle of punting is for cowards even when his team was going 2-14. Man Campbell makes the call. 
We're going for a two-point conversion. The Lions practice more two-point conversions than any other team. Why? Because they run more two-point conversions than any other team. The formula says if you're inside the four-yard line, go for two every time, especially if you convert them at over a 50% rate. Go for two every single time, especially in that situation where the possibility of overtime lingers. Man Campbell goes for two, executes the play. And I was I was reading Mitchell Schwartz's hypothesis on what was happening there. And Mitchell's explanation was like, did the ref go into autopilot and misrepresent who was reporting as eligible? Decker was the one walking up to report as eligible. Man Campbell said afterwards, he told the refs before the game, on one of these plays, we're going to have Decker report as eligible for a trick play. They announce Skipper, who is their guard, as the tackle. Who are as the their guard is the one who's eligible. He gets hit with an ineligible form illegal formation because he's lined up behind the line, or behind. I'm sorry, he's lined up behind the center. So, or I'm sorry, he's lined up in front of the center. And if he's an eligible receiver, that's an illegal formation. And so then you have. The confusion afterwards that you guys all saw, and the Lions go for two again at the seven-yard line, which was kind of wacky and wild in and of itself. They went for two at the seven, because at that point, I would have kicked the extra point and gone to overtime in that case. From the seven-yard line, you're not really getting the same beneficiary. I mean, like seven yards to two yards dramatically changes the possibility of you converting 50% of your two-point conversions from the seven-yard line. And so it was interesting to see them go for it again at the seven, but the play never counted because Micah Parsons jumped off sides. So then they had a two-point conversion at the three-and-a-half-yard line, and when they went for it at the three-and-a-half-yard line, Jared Goff missed the throw And like we said earlier, if Goff leads him into the end zone, that's a touchdown. It was a bad throw by Jared Goff. There's a play I saw from a mile away when they came up short. It was a bad throw by Goff because they threw it short of the the sticks at the one-yard line. The goal was for him to catch it and fall into the end zone in front of the defender who was guarding the end zone. And so he would have gotten in and they would have won the game that way. But that's just the way the cookie crumbled for the Lions. And the thing that I think is so interesting is Ever since the Rams-Saints NFC Championship game, I have been the I will not blame the officials guy. It's it's a it's a it's an imperfect science. It's impractical to look at one single play when there's a bunch of missed calls all throughout the game and not be the blame the referee guy. But I have never seen a game end on one that is so administrative more than it is a judgment call in the moment. I won't go after the judgment calls. I genuinely don't know what to do with the administrative call being the thing that ruins the game for the Detroit Lions. Not an illegal formation like Kadarius Tony. not a judgment call in the moment like a pass interference call. It was in the, in, in the pre-snap administrative mistakes that were clearly defined to be on the official, and that's something that I don't know exactly how to process because I have never seen a football game end that way before. So maybe by the end of this next segment, talking about the Baltimore Ravens-Miami Dolphins game, maybe by then I will have come up with some sort of feeling or explanation for how to process an administrative mistake being the deciding factor in a game like that.
maybe we'll figure it out. Maybe we'll journal and, and internalize and process our emotions so that we can give you a better ending to this 20-minute diatribe about lions and cowboys than just, I genuinely have never seen something like this and therefore don't know how to process or internalize that with our previous feelings about how officials' jobs are imperfect sciences and we're not going to be the blame the refs people. Oh, boy. Ravens smoked the Miami Dolphins out the building. Man, I thought I was going to come here. We were going to have so much fun talking about the game with the biggest stakes of any game so far this season in the NFL. Nope. Nope. The Baltimore Ravens ended up smoking the Miami Dolphins out the building. 56 points hung on Miami's defense. From the Miami standpoint, man, we came here last week on this very same NFL Monday podcast. After they beat the Dallas Cowboys, they got to 11 and 4, which should have been getting to 12 and 3 because of that incredible throwaway of a game they had against the Titans on Monday night back in early December. We came here and we were talking about how the Dolphins were hitting their stride on offense at precisely the right time. They were explosive. They were able to control time of possession against the Cowboys, able to do whatever they wanted against a very good defense like Dallas, so much so that they timed out the victory all the way down to the very end. And then Raheem Mostert was out. And Jalen Waddell's injury was worse than we thought, so now Jalen Waddell is out. Tariq Hill played in the game, but Tariq Hill was also limping off the field at one point. He had a wide-open touchdown in the end zone when it was 7-7, to and he bobbled it and caught it out of bounds. So at seven points turned into three right there just based on Tariq Hill dropping a pass, which, by the way, it's not just the Kansas City receivers that are dropping passes this year. It's now the old Kansas City receivers, too, who are also dropping passes. But Tariq Hill just had a drop, and then he was uh, limping off the field on the next drive for the Dolphins. Obviously, he missed a game two weeks ago against the Titans, so Tariq Hill's been battling injuries and is still playing hurt. No Jalen Waddell. No Raheem Mostert, Tariq Hill battling injuries, their left tackle was out, Xavier Howard left the game on a cart earlier, Bradley Chubb left the game on a cart, looks like his season is over, Jalen Phillips already tore his Achilles earlier this season, their, their starting cornerback was also out in addition to Xavier Howard, uh, I forgot the name of the, the linebacker who's been out for them all season, he got hurt back in September, just so many damn injuries for the Miami Dolphins. A-Chain was already out, or A-Chan was already out on IR earlier this year. He's the healthy running back now for the Dolphins. Just so many injuries making Tua Tagovailoa's life awful. And how messed up is that two years in a row for the Dolphins? Last year, it was Tua's injury that seemed to be doing him in. And this year, it's everyone except Tua. Because Tua's the healthy one. And now his offensive lineman, his starting running back, his two starting receivers, both star edge rushers, Xavier Howard, a former all-pro cornerback, Two corners, two edge rushers, a linebacker, two starting receivers. 
really three starting receivers if you include Tariq Hill going down and playing through injury. Just a cataclysmic number of injuries in the span of like seven days. And I know Mostert was playing hurt last week, but just a cataclysmic number of injuries in that game for the Dolphins. And that's the simplest way to explain a game that had so many stakes, so much excitement tied to it, and it just didn't work out the way that they had hoped it would. And now Miami, with all of these injuries piled up, have to win against Buffalo in week 17, or sorry, week 18, in order to get the AFC East title. If they had just not thrown the game away against the Titans, they would have had the division like they deserve. Buffalo doesn't deserve the division. I know they're really, really good, but they also are now the Kadarius Tony offsides play away from stealing the number two seed from Kansas City, which is also messed up that Kansas City is maybe going to have to play at Buffalo instead of getting a home playoff game because of the Kadarius Tony offsides play. That's kind of messed up for Kansas City's sake. Not that I'm going to like be out here pounding the, the drum for Kansas City at this point. They've had a charmed existence. They're going to have to play some road playoff games this year. It's fine. They still have a super precise offense capable of beating any of these teams because they have Patrick Mahomes. Heck, I'm recording this and watching them beat up on Cincinnati right now. I'm sure that take won't age poorly later, but looks like they're going to beat up on Cincinnati and Jake Browning's Bengals, who I bet you are going to be on our Get Up Out the Paint week that we're going to have coming up at the end of this week. Get Up Out the Paint week is upon us. We can add that to our repertoire of teams that are going to be in Get Up Out the Paint week. Depending on the result of this Seahawks and Steelers game we might have to delay get up out the paint week because if the Seahawks win we can get like seven teams up out the paint but if the Seahawks lose well all these teams are still fighting for that meaningless seventh seed in the NFC playoff picture other than that the rest of the NFC playoff picture is already set now I mean San Francisco got the one seed thanks to the Arizona Cardinals congratulations Arizona for being uh, Jonathan Gannon wins pettiest pettiest win of the year award. That's for sure what I'm going to get him. The pettiest win of the year because they went from having the number two pick to having the number four pick in the draft, which is basically going to be the difference of Marvin Harrison Jr. or ending up with a, a an equally very good player that is not the f- player that the fan base has been clamoring for all season long. They are going to go from potentially losing out on Marvin Harrison Jr. by beating the Eagles, taking away the NFC East title from the Eagles, which is so messed up. So messed up that Jonathan Gannon is the reason the the Eagles uh I forgot who did a ESPN did a really interesting story that was talking about how Gannon's departure from the Eagles made it so the Eagles lost out on Vic Fangio and by losing out on Vic Fangio they were behind the curve in trying to hire a new defensive coordinator but then the linebackers coach for the Eagles left to go be the defensive coordinator of Arizona and so they were just behind the eight ball all the way through it was just a really interesting story and then Gannon who is in part responsible for the decline of this defense for the air for the uh philadelphia eagles comes in and picks apart that eagle defense to spite the cardinals chances of getting marvin harrison jr 
and getting the number uh, two pick in the draft just to take away the NFC East title from the Eagles, which is absolutely hilarious, hilarious for how that's going to end up for Gannon and for Arizona. Just a hilarious way for that whole thing to go downhill at the end for Arizona, while simultaneously also in a tie game with five minutes to play, going onside kick. They went on, their defense is really bad, okay? The Cardinals from 15 to 15 yard line can't defend anyone this year. It's just a terrible defense. They they do okay in stopping once teams get to the red zone, but other than that, just a terrible, terrible defense. And so with 5 minutes to go and knowing that what the Eagles do rushing the ball, with 5 minutes to play in a tie game, Jonathan Gannon looked up and said, "Boys, we are not going to touch the ball again if we kick this to the Eagles, so let's just go on side, see if we can recover, and when we don't, which they did not, let's just give them the 35 yards back right away. And they held them to a field goal, and the offense went down and won the game. I don't know if it's genius, I don't know if it's idiocy, I don't know if it's both. But Jonathan Gannon did an unconventional thing of going onside kick with five minutes to play, giving the Eagles the go-ahead field goal so that his offense could get the ball and pick apart the terrible, terrible Eagles defense. He said, I would rather you score the points and we go score on your defense with our at least pretty average and pretty strong rushing attack, actually. The rushing attack was really good against the Eagles. They looked up and said, we would rather kick onside and let your offense score then have our defense try and prevent you from getting in a field goal range, which you're inevitably going to do, and running out the clock on us. Welcome to the new NFL in 2023, where all offense is bad, and we have more nine-minute field goal drives than I can remember in the last, like, seven years combined. Welcome to the new age NFL, where petty-ass Jonathan Gannon makes that move to beat that Philadelphia Eagles team that he used to be the defensive coordinator for, left on salty terms, and is partially responsible for the defense completely falling apart that Arizona took advantage of to beat them in the last game that the Eagles needed to clinch the number one seed. All they are not the number one seed to clinch the division. All they had to do was beat Arizona and beat the Giants. It didn't happen, and now where are you if you're Arizona? Or sorry, if you're Philadelphia, they're going to probably be the five seed. They're going to have to go to Tampa. And I'm telling you, Tampa's going to win that game. Although granted, Tampa totally let me down after saying they've been the best offense in the league the last three weeks. They put up like zero in the first three quarters against the Saints. But Tampa's still probably going to win that division. Tampa is still probably going to host Philadelphia. And in my mind, Tampa is still probably going to beat the Eagles against them in the wild card and Tampa with Baker Mayfield is going to make it to the second round of the playoffs where they will get smoked out the building by either Dallas or by a 49er team that has had two weeks to rest because 49ers got the number one seed 
already locked up. They're going to rest everyone. Rams are going to get the sixth seed. And the NFC playoff picture is essentially set. You got Niners one, Cowboys two, Lions three, Bucks four, Eagles five, Rams six. That's basically how it's going to set up. And then some random team who gets the right to get eliminated by the Dallas Cowboys in the seven versus two game. Maybe it'll be Seattle. Maybe it'll be the the Vikings or the Bears or someone dumb like that. But maybe even the Saints will sneak into the playoffs and protect Dennis Allen's job but for the most part it's just gonna be yucky and dumb and the NFC playoff picture is already set with a week left in the season thanks to Jonathan Gannon with the pettiest win of the NFL season pettiest pettiest win of the entire NFL season just chef's kiss magnificent job by him magnificent magnificent job to end their season with the to end their chances of likely getting Marvin Marvin Harrison Jr. and winning the pettiest pettiest game of the entire season against his former team. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.